has been leading the church down in Chichester, uh, Grace Church, for uh, 11 years. He's just handed over leadership to David Thompson, who was one of the elders here when I uh, first came here seven years ago. Um, but Steve has handed over leadership, and he's just about to go to the Coin Church in Woking, and uh, they'll be moving up later this year uh, to lead the church. I've been part of uh, the team uh, in commission that uh, is involved in overseeing churches in this, this side of the region, and uh, Steve Lee has been leading it. I want to say it's uh, been a pleasure to work alongside him. He's uh, an uh, exceptional speaker. Um, he is a great leader, and it's a great privilege for us to have him here this morning. So let's give him a big hand. Well, hello, good morning. It's it's a lovely introduction. That was nice. It's great to be here today. I want to say thank you so much for the invitation. Um, I I feel like I have a few close connections with Winchester forged over the years, but but not least my daughter Phoebe is now here at university. So thank you for looking after her. I think she became a member just a few weeks ago with you guys. So uh, hey, that's great. You're obviously doing something right. So thank you. I've been listening into your series on Daniel, uh, because that's what I'm going to be speaking on this morning. I'm doing the fourth part of that series, so I've been listening into that, and it's been a real joy to hear all that's been said so far. I hope that this morning we can carry that on and uh, bless you. I want to start, um, well, our title today is This History is His Story. That's that's the title. We're going to be in the the back half of Daniel chapter 2, so we'll be going there in a moment. But I want to start by asking you a question this morning, which is this one. What's the weirdest dream you've ever had. Now, don't, don't shout it out. Um, we, we probably haven't got time to exchange stories of, uh, of weird dreams. I, I had a crazy one last night that involved uh, parking in home-based car park. Would you believe it? That's what I was dreaming about last night. Um, true story. But uh, I, I guess we all have dreams, um, and most of them are long forgotten, even as we wake up. But I think the truth is, every so often, we get one that sticks with us. Have you ever found that? You get something, it just sticks with you. And so I thought I would do a little bit of a survey this morning. I want to do a quick, quick check by a show of hands just to see how normal you are in Winchester. Is that all right? So it's just going to see how normal you are. I'm going to be judging you. Um, and so uh, can we all just, let's all just raise a hand first of all. Can we all just do that? I just do that everyone around the room because I want to check that your arms are working. I think that's always the first thing. You can put them down there. Your arms are working. That's good. Most of them, some in the balcony aren't working, I noticed. Uh, let's just try that again for the balcony. Can we, can we do that? Thank you, my friends. It's wonderful. I so appreciate you joining in like that. Um, here's what we're going to do. We're going to just do a quick check, and I want you to do this for me. I want you to put your hand up if you've ever had a dream about being chased. Who's ever had a dream without being chased? A little look around the room and have a seat. Um, and keep your hand up as well. This won't be everyone, but keep your hand up if you've had a dream of being chased, but in the dream you were kind of paralysed so your legs wouldn't quite move properly. Have you ever had that it's interesting, actually. Quite. That's, do you see how it's most most people have that? Okay, you can put them down again. That's good. I'll just check. That's good. I've got got a fair assessment of you there. Um, who's ever had a dream about their teeth crumbling or falling out? Let's do that one. Teeth crumbling or falling. My hand's actually not up for this one. A few less. Yep. Yeah, okay. That's that's fine. Teeth crumbling and falling out. It's quite common. Okay. Who's ever had a toilet dream? It's time to be honest now. The toilet dream. Now the toilet dream can take two forms. It's either you're looking for the toilet and you can't find it. Or, or you're on the toilet, okay, but the door is not there, and it's like, or, or you're in an, and there's people coming by. Let's do that one. Who's ever had it? 
Some of you know, yep, okay. That's quite interesting, isn't it? There's a few less, but these are quite common dreams. Um, just one more to check. Dreaming about being naked in public. Who said that one? Naked in public or somehow. Okay, just checking. Okay, that's helpful. I'm just uh, calculating your results here, and it comes up to say that you are quite average. Um, <laughs> Winchester, well, maybe slightly below average, but, you know, we don't like to, uh, to make too much. The, the craziest dream that my wife ever had and I have her permission to tell this. This is, this is a true story, so uh, gather in folk for an intimate moment here. The craziest dream my wife ever had. She dreamed one night that she was eating a rotten jelly baby. She was doing a, it was a rotten jelly baby. This is a true story. When she woke up, she found that she was only wearing one wax earplug. <laughs> true story. <laughs> It's a bit like I dreamed I was eating my pillow, and, you know, my, a marshmallow, isn't it? I dreamed I was eating a giant marshmallow, and when I woke up, my pillow was gone. Joe had this with a jelly baby, no, no wax earplug. True story. Am I, I'm not lying, am I? No, true story. Okay. Now, I, I guess most dreams are relatively meaningless and soon forgotten, but sometimes God might speak to us in a dream, and there are many Christians who would claim to have experienced God speaking to them in a dream. Let's have a show of hands on that one. You feel God's ever spoken to you in a dream? Quite a few. That's interesting. I would, I would say that's happened to me on a couple of occasions, and in today's passage, it's exactly what's going on. King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and it was troubling him. One, one more check. Who's ever, has anyone ever woken up crying or, from a dream? It's interesting, isn't it? Quite a lot. You can wake up really emotionally disturbed by something you dreamt and your emotions can take a, a while to recover. That happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now the story we're going to read in a moment took place, it was about 600 BC, so about 2,600 years ago, at that time Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon in what is now modern day Iraq and that meant he was king over the Babylonian empire which basically ruled the whole of the known world in those times. So he, he was king of everything. By contrast, there's a boy in the story called Daniel and he was a young Jewish boy who had been taken as a slave to Babylon and was being trained up in the king's Service. So let's read from Daniel chapter 2 and verse 1, and it's how we're going to start. Daniel 2 verse 1, we'll go from there. It says this, In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. Just notice, by the way, that it says dreams. It's plural. And that probably means he had the same dream several times, okay? And it disturbed him. Verse 2. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. And when they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I've had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. Notice now we're down to only one dream. So singular. So it's probably the same thing, night after night, and he's bothered. Verse 4. Then the astrologers answered the king, May the king live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will interpret it, which I think sounds quite reasonable, to be honest. Verse 5, the king replied to the astrologers, this is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and then interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble, which I think seems quite unreasonable. Just saying. Now, we all know it's very annoying when someone wants to tell you their dream, right? We know that. Oh, I had this dream. I'll tell you this. Oh, here we go. Okay. And, um, and it's annoying and it's random. But if that ever happens to you, next time, would you spare a thought for these guys? 
They would have absolutely loved Nebuchadnezzar to tell them his dream. Please just tell us. Instead, he was asking not that they just interpret, but they tell him what it was first. And the various court magicians pointed out to the king that that was impossible. Now, the story goes on to tell us how the king became irate and how he arranged to have all the wise men in the whole kingdom put to death, which is just the sort of man that he was. And whilst all this is going on, Daniel finds out and he is asked, he asks, sorry, to be given a chance to fulfill the king's request. And Daniel prays with his friends Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, we've all heard of them, and overnight God gave Daniel a vision containing the dream and its meaning, which I guess Daniel must have been pretty pleased about because it meant he now didn't have to be killed. So let's pick up the story then at verse 26 and see where we go from here. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? And Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he's asked about, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you are lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come. And the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else alive, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. Notice Daniel is a very humble guy, very quick to give glory to God. He doesn't take the credit for himself. He's not using this as a chance to kind of feather his own nest. Verse 31, your majesty looked and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its arms and chest of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet were partly iron and partly with baked clay. And while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. And it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay, and it smashed them. And then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a mountain that filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. So... Daniel told the king his dream, and the king must have been fairly impressed. I would be impressed with anyone that could tell me what I dreamed without me telling them. And I guess that would give you a confidence that the interpretation is likely to be right. If someone can tell you the dream, and now I'm going to tell you what it means, I'm I'm listening. You've got my attention. I've put up, that's an artist's impression of the dream, um, which I'll leave there. It just kind of illustrates it beautifully. It goes on. Your majesty... You are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands, he has placed all mankind and all the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them. You are that head of gold. That's that's quite a compliment, isn't it? Nebuchadnezzar probably smiling from ear to ear at this point. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. And finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. 
Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture. And they won't remain united any more than iron can mix with clay. So this dream is about a series of kingdoms to come in the future. And in the time of those kings, verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end. But it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true. Its interpretation is trustworthy. And so that's the passage. We have the dream. We have its meaning. The king was very impressed with all this. And as a result, he he gives glory to God... But it's only lip service. And the Babylonian wise men are spared death, and Daniel and his friends will get a promotion, and I think that's a pretty good result for them. Everyone's a winner. So what? What does that mean for us today? Well, what I want to do this morning, there are are three parts to this talk. I think the first part was to read the passage. We've done that, all right? What I want to do next, after that, is I want to explain the passage. I want to explain to you how these dreams came true, which means taking a little history lesson. Um, and I hope you can bear with me. So who loves history? Who hates history? I, I apologise, particularly you, sir, in the red. I apologise. The hater of history. But hopefully I can keep it brief enough to even retain your interest for a few moments. And if not, your wife will thump you. So that's good. And the third part I want to then do is apply the passage. I want to explain what it means for us today. But to do that, we need to know how it came true. Does, does that make sense? So, all right, so that's where we're going. Let's, let's do the second thing then. Let's explain the passage. Uh, So we're going to consider this question, how was this prophetic dream fulfilled? Because it has been fulfilled. Everything that King Nebuchadnezzar dreamed, Daniel told him he dreamed and interpreted has happened. So the dream and interpretation are so precise that a lot of scholars... Especially these days coming into, as we came through higher criticism of the Bible and coming into the last couple of hundred years, began to say that this passage could not possibly have been written when it was written because it so accurately predicted the future. And so if you take a point of view that does not believe that it's possible for someone to hear from God and predict the future, that predictive prophecy is impossible, then you have to conclude the passage was written after the event. And so they made lots of steps to prove it was, which was all very well till someone discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls and found that actually in 170 BC, the Asen Jews already had copies of this scripture uh, that contained details of stuff that would have been written before the end of this prophecy came true. And bearing in mind for the Asen Jews to accept it into their scriptures, it would have had to at least another two to three hundred years earlier than that for them to have accepted it and that the type of language form puts it back to five, six hundred BC. I think that's really... So you can try to explain it away, and scholars still do, but the evidence of history is that this was written before any of these events took place. Daniel writing in Babylon. As Christians, we don't need to explain these things away. We know that the God who made this world has its future in his hands, that he is sovereign over all of it. So let's look at how it was fulfilled. We start with the head of gold, 
We're told by Daniel what that means. You, O king, are that head of gold. The gold head represents effectively Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian kingdom. And that kingdom lasted, give or take, from around 625, so before Daniel was on the scene, to 539 BC, give or take. All right? You can add it'll take a year off here or there, but ballpark, that's where it came. And Daniel was very clear. He said, after you will come another kingdom. And that is those chest and arms of silver. And we find what happened in history was this, that the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, or the Medo-Persian Empire, conquered the Babylonians. And they ruled the world from about 539 to 331 BC. And Daniel lived long enough to see that happen. How about that? He lived long enough to serve in the court of the first Medo-Persian kings. How about that? That's good. Darius the Mede. You had Darius the Mede and Cyrus. Daniel was there. He got to see this come true. So that must have been quite cool for him, because he was just like a child when he was, he would have been 12, 13 when he was first taken into captivity, and he lived on into his 80s. So Daniel saw this one happen. He didn't, however, live long enough to see what came next. He didn't make it to 331 BC when that belly and thighs of bronze came, which represents the Greek empire under a very famous guy, Alexander the Great. All heard of Alexander the Great, but may not know who he was. He was Greek. Alexander conquered the known world. There's a whole story about how he wept when he saw there were no more worlds to conquer. But literally, the known world was conquered by Alexander the Great. And his empire after him, they ruled from about 331 to 61 BC when they were replaced by empire number four, the, uh, the legs of iron, which is, of course, we all know this one, right? The Roman Empire, which came and stomped across the world, this, this would treading on everything else. The Roman Empire from around 63 BC right into about 476 AD. Strong at first, but later on became weaker and split up. Talk about this iron mixed with clay. That's the general consensus of what the vision means. As some people would suggest those feet even refers into the future, even to our days. And that, that I can understand where they come from. And I talk about Europe and all of this kind of stuff. Maybe it seems to me that this is referring to the Roman Empire, which became split and divided as they tried to unite people who would fundamentally never be united. And we know, of course, that Jesus came into that context. Now, that's what the vision meant. And for Daniel... That must have been pretty encouraging because he was a slave in Babylon who conquered his people, but now he knew something. Daniel now knew for certain that Babylon was on borrowed time. And you have to admit, that's a pretty serious level of accurate prediction. That dream, given 600 BC, give or take, pretty accurate. But there's one more part to this vision, and it's the most important part for us, the small rock Cut out from the mountain, but not with human hands. A rock that strikes the statue on its feet and causes the whole thing to crumble into tiny pieces. It says, then blown away by the wind like chaff, leaving no trace. But the tiny rock then grows and expands to become a mountain that fills the earth. Who's that tiny rock? Yeah, Jesus. Jesus striking the statue on its feet. Its feet, bang, hits in that empire mixed with clay and iron. He's hitting it right, and Jesus came right in the center of the Roman Empire. He was born and brings the whole thing down into tiny pieces. Jesus, the rock of our salvation. 1 Peter 2, verse 6. As it says in Scripture, I am laying in Zion a stone, a chosen precious cornerstone. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Matthew 21, 42. Jesus said, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous 
in our eyes. That small stone, that rock is Jesus, rejected by men, but the cornerstone of our faith. Born during the time of the Roman Empire, but not born from human origins, not cut out with human hands. His father was God, his birth a virgin birth. Jesus, born in obscurity, not born in glory, not the head of gold or, or, or the chest or body of silver or bronze. Instead, he comes in weakness. He comes seemingly insignificant. He comes born as a baby in poverty to a teenage mother in a nation that had been oppressed and conquered by the Roman Empire. Jesus, the tiny rock that strikes the statue in the time of that fourth empire and destroys the lot. Just as Jesus' kingdom comes and grows and expands to fill the whole earth, so all the kingdoms of men will crumble and be utterly forgotten, but Jesus' rule and reign will never end. Amen? Revelation 11.15, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Hebrews 12, 28 to 29, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This, this pattern goes right through scripture. So we've read the passage. I've hopefully explained the passage, explained to you what it actually means. I think what remains to be done now is to apply the passage to our lives. So that's what we're going to do now. Is that okay? Did you follow that? Good, okay. I hope I didn't overdo the history for you. It's all good. There won't be a test later on. That's okay. But the application, hopefully, will be testing for your whole life. I want to bring you something useful. Our title today is this one, History is His Story. And I don't know about you, I love a good story, but something I've found is every good story, every really good memorable story needs a hero, doesn't it? You need a good hero, a hero of, of the day, the hero of the story, the, the, the great person who will, will carry the story through. And the hero of history is clear. It's Jesus. History is his story. All of history finds its source and its fulfillment in Jesus. But it's so easy to get this wrong. It's so easy to, to make a mistake. And we get this wrong any time we place our confidence in the wrong things. And I found, I thought about this, I, I think there's quite a few alternative heroes that people have for the story of this world. And I want to make some suggestions of a few uh, and just show you how even as Christians we can get caught up in this and make wrong calls about who the hero of the story actually is. So history is his story. Can I state the obvious for a moment and say, and you are not the hero? Do you know that you're not, you're not the hero of, of history? Do you know, how can I put it bluntly, do you know that the world does not revolve around you? As my parents might have said to me, the world does not revolve around you. Do you know that? I mean, do you really know that the world does not revolve around you? You see, Nebuchadnezzar missed this completely. He was so utterly self-absorbed that when he heard the interpretation of the dream, it's like he completely and utterly missed the point. It's like he heard the first part, you, O king, are that head of gold. And I, I feel as though at that point he stopped listening. Because... What happens next reveals that. He didn't catch the bit that his kingdom was on borrowed time. He didn't catch the bit that his kingdom would not last and that he now needed to belong to another kingdom that would come. And we see how he missed it by what happens in chapter 3. And I'm not going to preach chap next week's sermon because someone else here will be doing that undoubtedly probably next week. Is that you? So I don't want to steal Steve's thunder for next week. But there is one point that I think is really worth making about what happens next. Because as you'll read next week, the next thing that Nebuchadnezzar does is what? 
he sets up a giant statue. Does that remind you of anything he's just dreamed about? He sets up a giant statue, and it's made of what? Gold. Can, can you see the connection? He sets up his dream. Only, we're not going to have silver, bronze, and iron. We're going to have the whole thing of gold. It's 90 feet tall, and he demands that the whole empire come and bow down to it. You, O Nebuchadnezzar, are that head of gold. Damn right I am. Pardon my French. I'm not only the head of gold, head and chest. and uh, We'll have it all of gold. There will be no kingdoms following mine. I am the head of gold, and you will all come down and bow down to me. Nebuchadnezzar, humbled? Not at all. Not at all. There is no humility in that man. When you read chapter 3 next week, you are meant to make the connection back to chapter 2 and recognize that what he has done is enact his dream. The image of gold is Nebuchadnezzar's dream, except it's entirely gold, no humility. He inflated his whole ego. What should have humbled him made him think even more of himself than he did before. Question, have you humbled yourself before God? You see, Christians get this wrong sometimes. I have noticed this. It happens. Sometimes people hear the gospel selectively. So they hear this. They hear, God loves me and Jesus died for me. And then they miss all the stuff about their lost and guilty state before God. And it leads instead of to humility and awe before God and a heart of gratitude and worship, it leads instead to a sense that somehow they must be awesome and that God now owes them. It's like they did God a favor in becoming a Christian because God was incomplete without them. Jesus loves me so much he died for me. That means I must be absolutely fantastic. Is not the gospel. That's not the gospel at all. Gospel's not there to give you more self-confidence. It start, you enter in by humbling yourself. Now God is, you need to understand this. I want you all to hear this this morning. God is complete and satisfied in and of himself completely and utterly satisfied without you. Put it this way, God loves us, but he does not need us. I don't want to disappoint you this morning, but you need to know this. Heaven was perfect and complete without us. He didn't save us because we were so awesome. He didn't save us because he he just couldn't live without us, and God thought of us, and he was just emotionally distraught and couldn't cope, and Jesus died because God couldn't manage without me. That's garbage. It's not a gospel. God couldn't live without us. You didn't want heaven without us. No, that's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. He didn't die because you deserved it. That he was somehow distraught without you. The poor father longing for his children. Come on! In your lost and guilty state, Jesus rescued you and saved you when you deserved nothing. The only thing that we bring to our salvation is our sin. There you go. What do you contribute to your salvation story? You contribute your sin. It's not much of a contribution, really. (laughs) The gospel should lead us to utter humility before God and an awareness of our lost and guilty state and our total inability to save ourselves or to add anything to salvation. You are not the hero of salvation. Jesus is. He alone deserves the glory, yet sometimes we can set ourselves up as an idol and then expect God to bow his will before us. So how can you tell if you've got this right? 
Consider this question. How do you respond when life does not go your way? Hey, how about that one? How do you handle it when God does not comply with the way you think things ought to have been done? Oh, but I prayed that it would happen. Yep, but God thought otherwise. Do you rail against God? Do you complain as though God should be running the world in a way that works best for you, as though he should come and bow down before your statue of yourself? Or do you have the same attitude as Job had when his life fell apart? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Just reflect for a moment. I think it's just worth, on this one, just to pause for a moment and ask yourself the question, have you got this right? How do you respond when life does not go your way? Because the response ought to be worship. Always worship. Always worship. I've been diagnosed with that disease. I'm going to praise God. What's happened in my family is not what I want. I'm going to praise God. Didn't get the answer I wanted. I'm going to praise God. Finances have fallen apart. I'm going to praise God. The Lord gives. The Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Jesus is the hero of the story. You're not. Am I making sense? It's a challenge. I sometimes think... We'll move on to the second thing. I sometimes think that Romans 8 verse 28 can be so misunderstood by Christians. Romans 8 verse 28 is a verse we know well. It says this, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. Or or some phrase it like this, We know that God works all things together for good for those who love him and have been called according to his purposes. And we can think, oh great, it's all going to be fine because God is working everything together for my good. Nothing can possibly go wrong in my life. But the very next verse says, Romans 8, 29, For those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. So, there is just, so God works all things together for our good. And the good that he's working towards is that you become like Jesus. He works all things together for good because he wants you to become like Jesus. The good is you become like Jesus. How does he make us like Jesus? Well, it means he's working to save and to sanctify us, which means he's shaping our character so that we become like Jesus. And that shaping happens through trials and through difficulties and through disappointments and through endurance. And so all things working together for good means that you're becoming like Jesus, which means it's a promise of difficulties, trials, troubles, endurance and difficulties. That's what Romans 8.28 means. Amen? You get it? Oh, but God said it all worked together for my good. Yeah, are you like Jesus yet? Okay, so there's more trials and difficulties to come then because that's his good, is that you become Christ-like. That's his aim in you. Not that you just have a wonderful, easy life. It's not a promise of a life without disappointment. Jesus is the goal for us to become like him because it's all about Jesus. It's his story, not your story. Um, I'll give you a second one. History is his story and human progress is not the hero. Now... It's very possible for us to be fully aware that we personally are not the centre of history. And we get that. It's not all about me. The world doesn't revolve around me. But we can still end up attributing too much expectation to humanity and to human progress in general. It's like, oh, well, we used to live in the Dark Ages, but now we're all enlightened. We used to believe in myths and fairy tales, but now we have science. As if. I'm not saying that some medical advances in the last decades have not been awesome, they have. But can I point out that the death rate is still the same as it's always been? 100%. 100% of people die. I was reading an article in the paper talking about the death rate rising. I don't think it does. I think it's still 100%. 
There's just no end to human arrogance. It has actually been suggested, you might have seen the film, that one day scientists will develop a theory of everything. By which they mean this, a single, all-encompassing, coherent framework of physics that fully explains and links together all aspects of the universe. A theory of everything. Good luck with that plan. Can I suggest as Christians that we already have one? It's Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the theory of everything. Good luck finding one outside of him. In him all things literally hold together. He is the hero of history, the only one we should worship. And if your hope for the future is based on human progress, you are going to be disappointed. See, that statue decreases in glory and increases in strength as you go down. And then it's destroyed altogether, and another kingdom takes its place, Jesus' kingdom. I find it interesting that as you go down the statue, the kingdoms decrease in glory and increase in strength. See, gold gives way to silver, and then to bronze, and then to iron. Human progress might be rapid, but it seems to me that every year we value human life less and grow in our capacity to do more harm. In the past, we could kill each other one at a time with a spear. In the early 1900s, we found that we could do it in hundreds if we used machine guns. And in the 1940s, we developed a bomb that will destroy a whole city in one go. Hooray! Human progress! Isn't that good? Here are some statistics. There were over 190,000 abortions in the UK last year. That's an average of 520 children a day. Euthanasia won't be far behind. Human progress! If the answer you know, to our glorious future was human progress, then how come in the 1900s it is estimated that 37 million people were killed in warfare, another 27 million were victims of the collateral damage of warfare, 81 million, it's more than those combined, were killed by their governments, and 58 million died in famine in a world that has enough food for everyone. That's 203 million deaths caused by war and oppression in the 1900s. Human progress! But that was last century, right? Oh, yeah, we wouldn't do that now. No, 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 because we've, we've progressed all of 17 years since then. We must be miles further on. Well, the war on terror has claimed somewhere between 1.3 and 1.7 million lives so far by conservative estimates, but credible estimates also raise that as high as 4 million people killed by the uh, war on terror, but they're nearly all Muslims, so hey, who's counting from a Western perspective? Sorry, I hope you hear the sarcasm in what I'm saying there. Okay, please please hear that rightly. Because we're so full of peace now, aren't we? We're so full of... That was all last century's wars, 4 million. 4 million. Now... 65 million people are refugees in our world. 65 million refugees, people that have left their home. Roughly 21,000 people die every day of hunger or hunger-related causes. Tiff underestimating in the 1990s that it was 20,000. So it's gone up 1,000 a day. 21,000 people every day dying of hunger or hunger-related causes, according to the United Nations. That's one person every four seconds, and mostly it's children. Human progress! But there's still plenty of food in the world for everyone. Solving every problem. Humanity. I won't even mention the environment, oppressive government regimes, increased government surveillance, the loss of freedom of speech, political correctness. Human progress will not lead to utopia. Have you worked that one out? It is not the hero of this story. How can you tell, however, if you've got this right? Because we're Christians, we know this. Well, let me ask you a question. 
How bothered do you get by political events or financial turmoil? <laughs> do you lose sleep when the financial markets crash? Well, lots of you probably don't, but some might. Try another one a little closer to home. Were you upset by the Brexit result? Or by Donald Trump being elected? Or by any other similar event? It's not that these things are irrelevant. Don't hear that. I'm not saying they're irrelevant. But here's the test. If any of these events produced in you a strong emotional reaction, I'm not saying you don't have an opinion, or you might think, well, I think that's good news or bad news. Of course, yeah, we've all got that. I get that. But if any of them produced in you a strong emotional reaction, and some of you look back at your social media, you'll see whether it did or not. If you found yourself either angry or elated, that is probably a sign that maybe you've put too much confidence in earthly kingdoms, which are all going to end anyway. Praise God, we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Nebuchadnezzar thought his kingdom would last forever. He was very, very wrong. Can I suggest if we think the same about Western civilization today, we are also very, very wrong. Let me just take you on a quick history trip again. I apologize. Um, 500 years ago, 500 years ago, 1517, who was on the throne? Henry VIII, bang on, Henry VIII was on the throne of England. It was the Tudor Empire. Now we have the Windsors, then we have the Tudors. The Tudors were on the throne. Go back another 500 years before that. The king was called King Canute. He was a Danish king. The Danes were ruling, a Viking king, King Canute. He converted to Christianity. He's the one that tried to stop the tide at Bosom, just down the coast. 500 years before that, the Saxons ruled Britain. Hold on, Windsors, Tudors... Danish. Now we've got the Saxons ruled Britain in seven kingdoms. 500 years before that, who ruled Britain? The Romans were ruling Britain. Another empire again ruled Britain. They were in charge. 500 years before that, we're now to 500 BC, Britain was in the Iron Age and the first Celts were starting to arrive from Europe. Please note, pause here, side, side note. Celts, you're not the original inhabitants of the British Isles. You're another bunch of European invaders. The same as everybody else. I just sometimes feel they need to be told. Because it's like, we're the original Britons. No, you're not. 500 BC, the first Celts started to arrive. So that was just a little personal thing. I've got that off my chest now. I feel better. Okay. Go back another 100 years. Another 100 years before that, 2600 BC, we finally arrived at Nebuchadnezzar on the throne of Babylon. This island, prehistoric. No one really knows. We can have a guess, but it's prehistoric. 2,600 years ago, we were an island of savage barbarian tribes, I don't know, painting ourselves blue and eating dung. Who knows? And whilst that was happening, the story of Daniel was unfolding, and in terms of civilization, the Middle East was already thousands of years ahead of us. By the time we were running around painting ourselves blue and eating dung, huge empires had risen and fallen. They had already invented, get this list, reading, mathematics, writing, algebra, philosophy, government, taxes, armies, complex weaponry, paved roads, chariots, clean water, sewage systems, central heating, farms, irrigation, cities, shops, temples, markets, medicine and science were emerging and they would have thought of us as a bunch of barbarian savages and guess what? They were right. We were by comparison. And that's when Daniel told the king, your empire won't last. We need to hear the same message. Don't put your hope in human progress. All the kingdoms of this world will come to an end, including ours. Do you believe that? Because Nebuchadnezzar didn't. And I've got a suspicion that some of us don't really either. 
but it will. My friends, we need a better kingdom. We need to give our lives to an eternal kingdom. Our citizenship is in heaven and we await a saviour from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. One more thing just to mention briefly. Um, I think it's worth it, particularly with Christians, to mention this. History is his story. Fate is not the hero. Now, you might think it's obvious to us as Christians because the passage makes it clear, right, that God is in charge of the events of human history. He raises rulers up. He brings them down. Uh, he steers the course of history towards culmination. The, the fact that the dream so accurately told the future is an encouragement to us. We're not victims of circumstance. We're in God's hands. We get that. We probably all see that. But a wrong way to understand that would be to do this, to think, well, everything is predestined, therefore what can I do? Fate is not the hero. See, the Bible clearly teaches that God is sovereign over human history, but can I add that it also teaches human responsibility? That the Bible affirms the sovereignty of God over all of life, and it also affirms the significance of human activity. That without any contradiction, the Bible maintains a dual emphasis on God's plan and the need for his people to take faith-filled action. I'll put it this way. We are not fatalists. We are Christians. So we pray faithfully because God calls us to pray. And we work hard to try and bring the kingdom of God into every area of influence. So how can we tell if we've got this right? Well, it's very simple to consider how engaged are you with the issues that are affecting our culture? Are you informed? It's quite different to getting emotionally distraught because Donald Trump got elected or Brexit happened. Quite different to that. Are you informed? Do you pray? Jesus taught us to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. He taught us to pray because prayer matters. Why would Jesus teach us to pray if prayer didn't achieve anything? What would be the point? Please perform this useless activity. No, prayer matters. Pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Why? Because prayer has an impact. It impacts us. It impacts the world. Christians should also then be on the front line when it comes to issues of social justice, fighting oppression, caring for the poor. Christians should be engaged in every area. For example, education and healthcare and local government and the media and the creative arts and fostering and adoption and engineering and science and pick an area. Christians need to be there because Jesus said we are the light of the world. Don't hide your light. He said we're the salt of the earth to preserve and heal and bring flavor. We're Christ's ambassadors. We're called to be salt and light in the world, just like Daniel. Daniel didn't sit back when the king's edict came and was so clearly wrong, slaughter all the wise men. He didn't sit back and go, oh, well, nothing I can do. Oh, well, God's details, all in God's hands. Oh, well, I'll just go and be with him now. He didn't do that. He stoke up. He said, no, let me speak to the king. We're going to pray. And once he prayed, God gave him the answer. He was a believer But he lived in Babylon and he worked to be an influence for the kingdom of God. And you are a believer and you live in Babylon and you need to work to be an influence for the kingdom of God. Daniel was careful. Daniel was polite. Daniel was wise. Daniel was full of tact. Daniel was not stupid and he was not obnoxious. I think we could learn a lot from Daniel. Be like Daniel, all right? (laughs) We need to pray. We need to work. We need to believe for God's kingdom breakthrough in our culture and our workplaces and our schools and our families and our neighborhoods. We are not fatalists. We are Christians. So finally, we come to this. History is his story and every story needs a hero. And you're not the hero of the story. And human progress is not the hero of the story. And my friend's fate is not the hero of this story. Can I tell you this morning that Jesus is the hero. He is the small rock 
that will bring down all other kingdoms, but his kingdom will fill the whole earth. Listen to what the Bible says, John 1 verse 1 to 4. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, Jesus, nothing was made that has been made. In Jesus was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Colossians 1, 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's head of the body, his church. He is the beginning. He's the firstborn from the dead. That in Jesus, sorry, that in, that in everything, Jesus might be preeminent. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him, he reconciled all things to himself. Things on earth or in heaven by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so we come down to one more thing to consider. Are you a citizen of the right kingdom? And I could perhaps add for Christians who already are, a second question, if you are a citizen of Jesus' kingdom, are you living it out? Are you living out as salt and light in this world? Have you recognized that you are an ambassador for the kingdom of God in Babylon? in the kingdom of this world. I think we should respond to this this morning, and I want to invite the band to come back up, and I'd love us to worship Jesus together. And as the band come, I want to present you with a final thought, and I want to just pray for us. Is that all right? And then we'll worship. So that's what we're I think there's a corporate response this morning. I want to pray for us, and then we'll worship. And the band are coming. My, my final thought, my final thing for you to think about is this. The primary way that you gain citizenship of any kingdom is by birth. I was born British. I know that sometimes people can apply for citizenship. I get that. But generally, birth is how it happens. Similarly, if you want to be a citizen in Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom he's building, if you want, that, if you want eternal life, if you need to belong to his eternal kingdom, there is only one way in, and it is by birth. There's absolutely no other way into Jesus' kingdom. Jesus put it like this. He said, no one can even see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. They'll be born again. And he went on to explain what being born again means. Not a physical thing, but a spiritual thing. A new spiritual birth that happens when we put faith in Jesus. The Bible put it like this. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And Jesus' kingdom... His eternal kingdom is growing every day as people from every tribe and tongue and nation put their faith in him and they receive forgiveness and eternal life that he offers us. So one in three people on the planet would now claim to be a follower of Jesus. His mountain's growing pretty big. I can tell you what, that's bigger than Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom ever was. There's already more in the kingdom of Christ than there were in the kingdom of Babylon. And it's growing daily. If today's an average day, somewhere between 20 to 30,000 people will put their faith in Jesus for the first time. They will take a step to believe in Jesus, receive forgiveness, and become part of his kingdom. Moving from the kingdoms that will fail 
to the eternal kingdom of Christ that will grow and fill the earth. Because the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Jesus is coming, my friends. He's building his kingdom and he builds it through us. And you could be one who belongs to it. So let's stand together. And we're all going to pray. And whether you want to pray this, whether for you you're praying it for the first time or for the hundred and first time, let's just pray together and commit our lives to building the kingdom of God, the eternal kingdom Jesus is building. So, okay, let's do that. Let's just pray. Why don't you all across the room just close your eyes and reach out to the Lord wherever you are. I'm going to lead us in a prayer. You pray along in your heart. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we believe that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And we surrender our lives to you and your kingdom today. Lord, that's what we do. Lord Jesus, thank you that through your death you opened the way for us to enter into your kingdom, to be born again. We, we thank you that you died on the cross in our place so that we can pass from death to life, so that we can cross over from a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Risen Jesus, we come before you humbly again. Would you forgive us our sins? Would you purify us today? Lord, we surrender to you. We, we ask now you'd help us to live as ambassadors for your kingdom, as salt and light, carrying the risen resurrection power of Jesus into this world. King Jesus, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And keep us from temptation and deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's worship him.